So if you are on the cleaners crew, or you want to be on the cleaners crew, because they'll always take more, uh, there's a meeting right after the service in the back, and just go back there and check it out. You'll be great. So uh, our softball teams, I haven't talked about them in a while, so one of us are doing really good. The other one has a perfect record. <laughs> just, not, just not the guy. Not yet. Okay. So anyway, so th- this, is, this is Tony. And uh, Tony, Jason Castillo, probably see, sits in the front row a lot with his wife. And this is, this is Tony, his brother. So this guy is, this is Heath actually still in the base. And he's like, we're like, oh, he's getting greedy. And he chucked this ball. Tony's like, boom, bam, tag. And he's up. Beautiful play. Just awesome. And so th- this, this is Jason, though. The next one. Okay, this is Jason. Jason gets his ball, and he's like on his back, and he's sliding, catches the ball, throws the third, gets this guy out. We're like, woo! It's awesome. Every time I talk about softball, though, uh, I get all these things from the different other people around here. Like when I talked about softball's uh, Facebook page, Lisa Long says, hey, women have a Facebook page. So just so everybody feels equal here, women's ministry. um, (laughs) They, uh, women's ministry has a lot going on. Uh, Denise actually helps in that, too. So here's... Okay. Then we also have small groups. Okay, so in small groups, okay, and uh, and Doug also helps in small groups. So it's, there you go. So there you go. Everybody gets their little feeling. Join a small group. You should. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, huh? Huh? But but you have more hair than he does, so that that's probably for you. Okay, so, uh, oh, I have, one, I have one other announcement to give you guys before we get going this morning, is there, there's a group that's called uh, Teen Court in Santa Maria, and if you have, like, some group that has a fundraiser, don't come talk to me. Uh, there are certain things I really like, though, that I want to tell you guys about. Teen Court is a group that, since they started, like, I think in 1998, they've helped over 2,000 teenagers, and what they are is they're a group that if a kid gets arrested or gets in trouble, before they go into the, the juvenile justice system, they typically can go through this thing called teen court. Drugs, alcohol, stuff like that, and it gives them a second chance, some rehabilitation, do some really good stuff for them. They are having uh, their biggest fundraiser for the year on November 21st. It's, it's a bowling thing, so if you like to bowl, you can go and bowl. It's, it's great. Uh, they have a website. Now, I'll tell you this. It's called CADASM, which is Council on Alcohol and Drug Abuse, Santa Maria. CADASM. And if you would like to be a part of that and help them out in what they do because it helps kids, it's a great thing. Go to that website, check it out, and then go bowl with them and help them out. That would be great for you to do. Okay? Yeah. None of you wrote that down. What's your problem? <laughs> Seriously. Why don't you guys stand on the reading of God's Word? This is uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And it says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people how to do that, uh, how to love mercy, how to walk humbly with you, and not have a big head and think that everything is all about us, that we don't always have to have the answers, because you are the answer. Help us to be a people that love and walk with you. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this six-week series called Empire. Uh, Empire, we are doing this whole thing about what the kingdom of God is. It's a biblical, historical look at what it was, what God called his people into, what they were supposed to be a part of, what we are also supposed to be a part of in that. And it actually comes down to, in the end, what God's kingdom is supposed to look like upon the earth. 
And so what we look at today is actually supposed to help us understand our role in that and the pattern where we can connect with God's story and God's plan of redemption and how we can truly be his people. And when we understand that, then we can be a people who show that to everybody else around us. Now, what we did originally is I talked about the kingdom of God. The second week we talked about Egypt. So here's a map. Okay, and the Israelites, you know, they were in Egypt and they cry out and God hears that cry. The next week we looked at Sinai. God brings them out of Egypt down to this mountain in Sinai and he actually meets with them there and at that mountain he says, you will be my message to the world. Not you're going to carry the message on your back somewhere so you can tell everybody about it, but that you yourselves will be the message. Now, today they're up in Jerusalem. Okay, uh, See, it should be a line from there that kind of just runs around in circles because it took them a long time to actually get there. But they're up in Jerusalem today. This is like it. They have made it. This is their kingdom. This is the promised land. If you have a Bible, open to 1 Kings chapter 10 because that's where we're going to be at. If you happen to, on the way in, grab one of the element uh, bookmarks, it would be good for you this morning because you can leave it in 10 and keep coming back to it Okay, because we're going to... 1 Kings 10. I'm just rambling until you get there because I'm nice like that. See? First Kings chapter 10, verse 1, goes like this. Okay, I'll wait. She, she's my, uh, are you there? No, no, I'm just watching. I'm, you can be like my guide. I'm there. Okay, good. All right, First Kings chapter 10, verse 1 says this. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Verse 9, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. God has made you a king to maintain justice and righteousness. This is a gigantic, huge development in what we have been looking at. Again, we start in Egypt. They are slaves to the world power, Pharaoh and, and his army. And they cry out to God, hear us, please come save us from our bondage. And God does. He brings these people out to himself. Then we looked at Sinai. And God gives these people a covenant about being his chosen possession, his priests, his message to the world, and then what the kingdom of God was supposed to look like. And now they have finally taken up this promise. They have the inheritance. They have their land. They have their kingdom. They're in Jerusalem. And here, a foreign queen who does not know God praises God. These once slaves are now world famous. They have an empire. Their fame spreads. Now, the queen of Sheba, from historical accounts, she's like an exotic beauty, so it's like, Lady Marmalade. <laughs> but, you know, much better than that, you know, and much... Some of you know what I'm talking about, you know, okay, that's good. Uh, and so it's debated whether it was Sheba, what may, maybe was uh, modern-day Ethiopia. A lot of Ethiopians actually trace their lineage to Sheba. Could have actually been modern-day Yemen. 
Now, if it was modern-day Yemen, this would be amazing because it would be an Arab queen coming to Jerusalem and praising the God of Israel. It's amazing. See, do you see these promises beginning to come true about what God said to these people? God brings them out so they would be a nation of priests so the world would know who the God of Israel was by how they lived and that God would then be praised because of it. And what does she see when she comes to Jerusalem? Solomon's wisdom, the stuff that he owns, the temple, and she is overawed at a slave people that have become so powerful. And she lands her entire list of praise at the feet of their God who values justice and righteousness. Now, this is a radical break of how people in this day viewed their gods. I mean, take Pharaoh, you know, who they came out from underneath. You know, Pharaoh's the guy who says, I am the ruler. God gave me power. I will rule over you. And by the way, you can call me God as well. You'll be my minions. That's how it normally is done. But this queen learns about this God who is a real God and loves people, actually cares about the cause of those who cry. And what impresses her most is that this God values justice and righteousness. Now, if this is where the story ended, it'd be perfect, right? It'd be like, oh, wow, you know, dun, 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 you know. But it's not, because your Bible has more pages than that. It's actually a little heavier than, than one page. Uh, so, it, you know, if this, but this is all you had, you'd think, well, that's the point of the story, right? You know, God hears this terrible oppression, and God comes, and he leads these people out, and it's a Hollywood ending, happily ever after, and, and the music goes, and the credits roll, and the curtains close. You're like, that was a great movie. That was just wonderful. That was what was supposed to happen, but it's not what actually happened. There's another side. I like to call this the dark side. <laughs> if you have a Bible, open to just to 1 Kings chapter 9, one chapter before that. Chapter 10 is kind of positive at the beginning, not so much a little farther into it. Chapter 9 comes before chapter 10. Chapter 11 comes after chapter 10, because that's how numbers work. Okay, like that. So 1 Kings 9, 15. Listen to this. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now, forced labor. What's another name for forced labor? Slaves. Exactly. In Egypt, the Israelites are what? And God hears their cry, and God brings them out, and he saves them and gives them an identity and a mission. You are to hear this cry. If there's people who are oppressed, you hear that cry, you do something about it. Somebody who's marginalized, you do something about it. And you now find them in Jerusalem. They're building their kingdom, their empire, using slaves. The the, The oppressed have become the oppressors. This is what has just happened. These slaves are told, I brought you out. I have rescued you by my grace. Hold a Passover. Have some feasts. Celebrate. Tell the story over and over and over of what I have done. Do not forget. Be very careful not to forget. And then you look at Solomon. What do you find out about Solomon? He forgot. He forgot. He conscripted slaves. The same thing that his people once needed to rescue from he is now doing. He becomes part of a system that is perpetrating the same acts once perpetrated upon his people. And they no longer can hear the cry that God calls them to hear. In Jerusalem, they are causing the cry of the oppressed. Now go to 1 Kings chapter 11, like two chapters to the right. So if you're a car at this point, you're driving down the road, that means your check engine light would be coming on. Okay, it's like, if something's not right, go to the shop, because how quickly they forget. 1 Kings 11 verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Now, I love this because in the Hebrew, this is really funny. It says, uh, Solomon, he loved women, foreign ones, many ones. 
It reminds me of that Saturday Night Live skit. Oh, it's, I am Olaf of the Hill People. I have walked with many women. Okay. No, okay. Reminds me of that. He loved uh, many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon, Solomon held fast to them in love. That's how you got to say that, by the way, love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. See, and yeah, you think, yeah, one's enough, right? You know, he's got 700. And, and he says, uh, and 300 concubines. That's for harvesting wheat, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. This is a subtle reference that Solomon is a son of David. Saul, David, Solomon, that's the line of succession of kings so far. Okay, so he's a son of David. Says he followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. You know, when you hear that, you go, well, that's kind of harsh, detestable. Isn't, aren't we supposed to be tolerant and nice? Well, here's the deal. Moloch is a god that said, if you really follow me and you love me, you will sacrifice your firstborn child to me. Okay, that's Moloch. When you see that his heart is led astray, it means his heart has become very dark. Verse 6, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Another subtle reference to the fact that he is a son of David. Now, all this is very significant. In chapter 9, it deals with Solomon accumulating these slaves. In chapter 11, he's accumulating wives. Two key things, forced labor, 700 wives, and 300 concubines for harvesting wheat. Okay. Why, why is this important? Okay, well, which is, you saw these people, they were rescued from slavery and oppression and brought to Sinai. We looked at how Egypt in Scripture and for the Hebrews became a symbolic for a kingdom that was anti-God's kingdom. They set up these things and sin became so epidemic in their society that their entire kingdom was set up to oppress and oppose and use people. But it also showed that on a personal level, it represents the darkness and the sin that every single person is actually born into. And our need for God to come and rescue us from our sin and bring us out into redemption so we can actually be free people again. That we can live in God's kingdom. Then we look at how Egypt also is what represents what happens when sin becomes embedded in society as a whole. Individual and societal. We saw God longs to bring people out of their sin. We talked about Billy Graham. Now Billy Graham's message is peace with God. Individual, you and God. That's what it is. Then we looked at how God longs to bring a whole society, a whole people out of systemic sin. We looked at Martin Luther King. And now he calls our nation away from racism. And then we saw that Christianity as a whole comprises both of these. Yes, it is about Jesus, you and Jesus. Jesus saves you, but then that is supposed to go and infect every part of your life and everybody you come into contact with. Everything is supposed to change because you now follow Christ. Everybody's lives are supposed to be a little bit better because you are in them and you follow Jesus. Everything becomes a little bit better. It's not just one, it's not just the other, it is both. And what you have with Solomon is that he is failing on both fronts. In verse 9, the guy has slaves, a whole system of oppression. And they are building God's temple with these slaves. In chapter 11, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it's not just the system that you see. It is his own heart that is now dark. I mean, the writer in, in this book is just brilliant because he is showing that in both senses, this empire is in trouble and it's going off the rails. It seems everything in Scripture kind of goes this way. Everything goes bad. You go right before us, you have David and Bathsheba. David's up on top of his roof one day. His men are out to battle. And he looks over and sees a naked woman bathing. He's like, I like naked women. Look at that. And he looks over and he sees her. He says, I want her. He's got 300 wives of his own, yet he wants that one. So he goes and he commits adultery with her. 
Okay? You go a little bit before that, you have a guy named Jacob and, and Esau. And God promises Jacob, you're going to get the firstborn blessing. You will get this. But he doesn't trust God. So what he says is he, is he tricks his dad and his, and his older Wookiee brother. And what happens in the end of this is that these two brothers end up hating each other. And their descendants want to fight. You go a little bit before that, you get Abraham and Sarah. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son that leads to a son to a son to a son that leads to my son, Jesus. And Abraham says, great. 20 years go by, it hasn't happened yet. Like, I don't know what's going on. So his wife says, hey, I got this maid. She's kind of hot. Why don't you sleep with her? We'll help God fulfill this promise. So Abraham, like a crazy dude, goes, okay, I'll sleep with your maid. So he makes a baby with the maid. And God's like, that's not what I was talking about. And a few years more goes by and God gives his actual wife, Sarah, a child, Isaac. And then you have, you know, Ishmael, the, the other child goes, and this becomes the Arabs. And you have Isaac and Ishmael and the Arabs and the Israelites have been fighting ever since. You go a little bit before that and you get a guy named Noah. You know, God sends the flood. After that, Noah gets an entire new creation. First thing he does, he plants a vineyard, which is fine. Makes some grapes, which is fine. Makes some wine, which is fine. Gets so drunk, he passes out naked in his tent. You don't see that in the coloring book. Okay, it's not like, <laughs> here kids, you know, th th this is what it is. Everything is moving towards Jesus. Everything is moving towards Jesus. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve fall, and God comes and says, You know what? I'm going to make this right. I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to take care of this. And when Jesus comes, he comes into this city called Jerusalem. Why, why does everything seem to center around cities? Created order. It starts in a garden. It moves up to a city. The name of this city that, you know, at the end of the book of Revelation is called the New Jerusalem. History is moving into that redeemed direction, the New Jerusalem. Redemptive history begins because God hears the cry of his people. In Revelation 21, 3 and 4, in the final city, when everything is done, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Begins with the cry, God will end that cry. God is passionate towards us. He is jealous about us. He loves us. In the final city, all that is lost is restored. God is reconciled to man. Man is reconciled to other men. Man is then reconciled to creation. The loss of the garden, the gain of a city, and God's people joining him in that. The whole purpose of, of church and community and how this whole thing is supposed to work is that we're supposed to worship God together and then hear the cry together. History is this unfolding of life from the garden on the way to this city. And God is seeking and teaching us so we understand that story. First Kings chapter 9. Okay, so I hope we kept a bookmark there. Go back there. Egypt's empire, where they start, is enslaving people. And when you get to Solomon's empire in Jerusalem, the original one, that city, he is doing the same thing that was done to them. Don Golden, who's the senior vice president for World Relief, I talked about him a couple of weeks ago, he actually likes to talk about this section, and he calls it the empire of indifference. The empire of indifference, because the cry no longer matters. You can't hear it because the, the oppressed have now become the oppressors. In 1 Kings 9.15, again, it says, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. First thing you see is that God is against slavery. And Solomon is using slaves to build a temple to a God who is against slavery. His own palace. So he uses these slaves for his own comfort. Slaves are building his palace. The supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. 
Now, these last three are interesting. Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. If you don't know, you skip over this because it's like a Hebrew phone book. It's like, what does that even mean? Okay, how about this? The word Megiddo in English translates as Armageddon. Armageddon. Here's a picture. This is the Valley of Armageddon. It's in Israel. There is a spot in the Valley of Armageddon that people write about, and you can see a valley that would come down from Asia, one that would come over from Europe, and one that comes up from Africa. It is a very strategic piece of land. Battles have been fought here where historians tell you that blood in this battle have risen to horses' bridles. Okay? Very strategic piece of land. Solomon used slaves to build Megiddo. In Revelation, it is used figuratively or literally of a symbolic giant final battle. It's a place where bloodshed has been going on for thousands of years. Over this valley, Israeli F-16 fighters still patrol. Solomon's building a military stronghold at Megiddo. Why is this important? Keep your finger where it's at in 1 Kings and in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy is God's words to these people that he has brought them out of slavery. He's trying to teach them how to be a certain kind of people who will have a certain kind of presence in the world when they come into contact with other people. How do you love God rightly? In Deuteronomy, he gives them some warnings that someday you are not going to be wandering around in the desert and be these former slaves. You will have a mission and identity. Someday you will be in the promised land. You can build your kingdom. And God warns them in Deuteronomy 17, 16, that if they ever get a king, it says the king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more. That's the horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will, heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 10. You're like, wow, this is a lot of turning. Right, get your arms working. You'll be strong when we're done. You know, God says when you get a king, be careful that he doesn't get lots of horses from Egypt, lots of wives, silver and gold. Make sure he's one of the people. So in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities. Chariot cities are a reference to Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Okay? And also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from where? Egypt. Egypt. So he's building a new empire. This guy wants you, the writer of this wants you to see this from Egypt and from Q. The royal merchants purchased their, them from Q. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. So chariots and horses are things that chased the Israelites when they were trying to get out of Egypt. And then this is interesting. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. You know what that says? Solomon became an arms dealer. He's became, I mean, you've got a chariot. A chariot is like the 1,000 B.C. tank. Okay? And, and he's selling this to other people. God said, I am giving you a mission. I am giving you an identity to hear the cry of the widow and the orphan, the immigrant, the exile, the forgotten, the poor. This is how they will know who God is. If you make it to the promised land, do not become the type of people you were liberated from. And the text says you find Solomon in Jerusalem amassing wives, military might, storing up gold and silver, and trading arms. Look at verse 14 in chapter 10. See if the writer knows what he's talking about here, okay? It says, don't let him acquire too much gold. It says, 1 Kings 10, 14, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. See, numbers are very important to Jewish people. This is like a subtle reference to, oh, you know, uh, we weighed it, and maybe by coincidence, it's not right. It is not right. It's not what it should be. The writer is letting you know that Solomon is or has become someone who is working against the kingdom of God by what he is doing. 
This is the kingdom of comfort, not the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of indifference, not the kingdom of God. The priority has become self-preservation. Self-preservation. When you build your own empire and seek your own comfort, you will then try to protect that at all costs to keep what you have. Your efforts will all go into preserving your own empire. Solomon's money and his power are going to protecting and shoring up his very own kingdom, and he has lost the cry. He has lost the cry. It, it, this is what happens is, is it keeps Solomon. You keep seeing Solomon be called the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. And so what the writer looks at and he says, so this, this is the son of David. A son of David can either use his power given him to help those in need or step on and oppress other people. What type of kingdom is this son of David actually bringing? Does he have a heart for the widows and the orphans and the outcasts and the strangers? Or is this son of David who amasses wealth and weapons and wives? What type is he? What you see when Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom of God. He talks about this 82 times. This whole thing about empire is about the kingdom of God. And when he starts announcing the kingdom of God, the crowds start to ask the question, is this the son of David? Jesus heals and he speaks and he casts out demons. In Matthew 12, 23, it says, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? You see, it's in Matthew 9, 27, Matthew 15, 22, and Mark 10, 47. A blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, as a son of David, what kind of son of David is he? Is he out to oppress and crush and accumulate comfort and sap people of life? Or is he a son of David announcing a new kingdom that calls people to a new identity or the identity that they were actually originally called to, to be a people with a mission? That is the question people are asking. What type of son of David is Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem and he calls the people into the kingdom of God and how they are truly supposed to live? When you read these things about kingdom and empire, anytime you come across these things, you realize these powers can be used for good or evil. We all live in, everybody on the planet lives in some type of kingdom. Everybody does. Everybody does. So I want to give you a real world application as best I can. This is not meant to irritate you or tick you off, but we're going to see if it does or not. We'll, we'll find out. Um, so I'm going to try something. I want to know, um, where were your, the shirts you, you wear, wore this morning, where are they made? I want you to look. Seriously, so if you're a girl, help a girl. No, 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 have somebody look for you. If you're a girl, look for, don't like pull it over your head. I don't want to see your belly because then they'll be like the cry. They don't have to hear the cry. And they'll be like, oh, I, I hear your cry. Okay, mine's made in Sri Lanka. I saw that. Mexico? India? Indonesia? China. Where else? Cambodia, got that? Taiwan. I can't spell that, but I think I can like. Where's that? Honduras. Vietnam. Good morning. Okay. So we have, so, so I have Sri Lanka, Mexico, India, China, USA, Indonesia, Taiwan, I get Indonesia twice, uh, Cambodia, Bangladesh, uh, Honduras, which I really didn't spell right, and Vietnam, Sri Lanka. Now, go with me on this. Hopefully this, this will make sense. The person who makes your shirt, uh, how many hours do they work? In a day, in a week, in a month? Do they get breaks? Do they get to eat on those breaks? 
You know, how, how long are the breaks? Is food close? Or is it far? Are they forced to live at the factory? Does, does the factory take money from their check for housing, whether they use it or not? Do they get sick days or personal days? What if they have a baby? You know, if, if, you, if, you, if they take some days off, do they lose their job? What are the workers' rights? Do the workers have any rights? Is it hot, cold? Does it smell? Are the conditions sustainable long-term? Would you work there? You know, does the company help people who get hurt on the job? What are, what are those conditions? How many hours are they expected to work in a row? If you had to work there, would you say, this is beneath me? You know, when do they get to see their families? How much does it cost to make this shirt? How much did you buy it for? Where does the money go in between? If you look at a guy making 80 cents a day making a shirt, you know, and, and what we pay, sometimes we would say that's not right. You know, uh, is it made in a country where abuses can be reported? Uh, you know, where, where the press can maybe do a story and not slant it and, and not be killed? You know, where the government is, is for the people and not just for themselves? So if, you, if you automatically say, what does it matter? I don't care. Stupid question. I got my shirt. Someone got paid. Whatever. If you say that automatically, that is the empire of indifference because you don't care. I got mine. I don't care kingdom of comfort, not the kingdom of God. The problem is we bought our shirts that we are wearing. Some way, somewhere, we helped some system somewhere by our participation. You know, in this room, we dressed this morning, which I am very glad for. Thank you very much for wearing clothes. It's appreciated. But the fact that our shirts come from so many places around the globe and that we are in Santa Maria just proves that we are connected to the other side of the world. This is not to guilt you or shame you at all. I'm just asking the questions because these are the questions that Scripture forces us to actually ask ourselves in a practical way. Are we in any part of an empire of indifference? Or are we part of the kingdom of God? God has called His people to a mission, to remember what it means to be His people. And we take the gospel seriously. I will tell you this. In the clothing industry today, in our world, there are some really good things beginning to happen. Some really good things things. I'm not telling you to go home, go through your closet and throw your clothes away because you bought them, keep them, okay, whatever. But sometimes we, we got to ask these questions. You couldn't go to some of these foreign countries and pay somebody, you know, what you pay somebody in America. You would destroy the economy. You, you can't actually do that. But the thing is, when you think about empire, there are some compelling questions. And we don't have the luxury of saying, I don't care, because as Christians, we are connected to the entire world simply by the fact that you are wearing clothes, which again, we are very thankful for, okay? You must ask yourselves, is there any place in our lives that we have become citizens of this kingdom of comfort and not the kingdom of God? Even in things as simple as the clothes you wear or also as large in the relationships that you have in your life, period. Here's some questions. Do you seek your own comfort or the call of Christ in your life? Do you give of your time and your energy and and what you have to help other people? Uh, Do you have a palace or a home and, and you don't care about anybody else because you've got yours and that's it do you have a chariot with many horses or horse powers how's that works you know and you can't hear the cry do you have a husband or wife and secretly wish you had more or less <laughs> you know, do, do you do you have do you have kids you know and maybe secretly wish that you don't have kids <laughs> or something like that do you have friends i mean this is this is the question do you do you give your friends and the people around you your time and your energy or simply expect them to always give to you That's the question. Jesus came to rescue us from indifference to people that actually make a difference by how we interact with the world around us. I tell you this constantly, guys, that that we consider this a missional church. That means that everybody in this room is on mission. A missionary is not somebody who lives in a foreign country. You are a missionary simply by the fact that you claim the name of Jesus. 
and wherever you live, whatever you do, that everybody you come into contact with should, their lives should be made a little better. The good news of the gospel should be known to them just simply because you're in their life. And that's not just through your voice. It's through your actions and how you treat people around you. I mean, we are on this blue ball that we call earth floating around, and God has one plan for this entire blue ball. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus came, and he didn't seek his own comfort. He sought to save us from ourselves and our sin. Yet in saving us, Jesus doesn't just leave us the way we were. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He calls us to become the message of people who are called out to be his people, his priests, and his ambassadors to the world around us. Last week, I asked you this question. You know, uh, you know why is there suffering in the world? One of my favorite authors, his name is Peter Kreft. And Peter Kreft, on, on the wall of his office, he has this cartoon. There's two turtles. And in the first panel, the one turtle looks at the other one and he says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And the second pain is the other turtle. And he goes, when I get to heaven, I'm worried God's going to ask me the same question. That's the point. We are to make a difference. You know, we are the body of Christ. God made Solomon a king to uphold justice. And we're to be people of God who are people of justice and mercy and grace in everything we see and also what we don't see. And also what we don't see. And again, nothing I said is make you feel guilty at all. Not at all. God loves to give his kids good gifts. He really does. But part of God giving good gifts is so that we would also bless other people around us with the gifts he has given us. We are blessed to be a blessing. Has he made you a student, a carpenter, a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, a musician, a loan officer, a stay-at-home mom, a manager, a cop, a tattoo artist, a, a pastor, a designer, a computer tech, a grocery store clerk, an insurance agent? Whatever he has made you, you are blessed to be a blessing. That's how that works. Never to live your life indifferently, but always asking the hard questions of God, where have you called me to? Because when you ask those hard questions, it will make a difference in every area of your life in your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your boss. Everything begins to change because we are blessed to be a blessing, not to suck it all up, but to simply be a blessing to the world around us. The band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in some songs. And, and as they do, I invite you to join in with these songs as we sing about... Uh, one of the songs we're doing is a song called uh, How He Loves Us. And we, and we sing this song, and some people are like, Oh, yeah, he loves me. Oh, it's so wonderful. He just loves me. I'm so... The reason we sing that song is so we understand the love of God and that love of God in our life is supposed to then translate out into other people. Okay, it's not like, oh, he loves me. It's just me and Jesus. Now I'm going to get in my car and cut people off and drive like a moron. Okay, it is God loves you so you love other people. I mean, he is, he is jealous for us and he loves us intimately. And we're to love other people the same way. We take communion this morning. Uh, you take that cracker and you break it, which reminds us of his body, which is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. This shedding of his blood and his body that was broken is so we can have redemption, so that we can be this people of God that he calls us to be. Because until we live in that redemption, we cannot be part of the good news. I mean, you can't participate in it if you're not part of it. And communion reminds us of what Christ did for us, and we reset our lives at his feet so we live how he calls us to live. We're going to worship God through prayer. There will be some elders and deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, if you've never come to this place in your life or you're in the middle of a kingdom of comfort and it's all about you, go pray with them. If you're a little too embarrassed about that, when the band plays, you take communion, sit there and just go over it in your head and go, God, I'm sorry. Show me how to give. Show me how my life should be different than what it is today. And we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering box on the sidewall and in the very back. And we give simply because God gave so much to us. And part of our worship is actually giving back. And we worship God through fellowship where you guys get to hang out with other people in the kingdom of God, eat the goodies in the back, drink the coffee, 
It's pretty hot. Uh, I took some of the hot water, burnt my tongue this morning, so it's, it's pretty hot. But it's good. You guys get to know each other and spur one another on to ask these questions. I mean, if you're in a small group or you go out to lunch with people after this or, or brunch because of the time, ask people those questions. Hey, you know, where in your life is a kingdom of comfort? Because we all have it. We all do. You know, where would I rather give to myself rather than give to other people? Ask your friends those hard questions because that's what friends do. You know, enemies stab people in the back. Friends will do it in the front. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for being a God that loves us the way that you do. Uh, a God that has come and redeemed and rescued us and not just called us to save us, but called us to also give us a purpose. God, we have been given more than we could ever imagine. And I ask that in that giving that you give us, we would then turn and give as well. That you would teach us how to be a blessing how to take up that original call that you gave your people and that call that has never ended. To love the world around us as you love the world. Help us to be a people who are those who live in your light and your goodness and your grace so that those who are looking and seeking and their lives are falling apart would know the goodness of you. That you have called us out of our darkness and into your light. That you pulled us out of Egypt and brought us to Sinai and said, Be my message and be my people. And that we can be a people who figuratively live in Jerusalem as your people. In a kingdom underneath you that you have made in our lives. That we will be more committed to you as our king than ourselves as your subjects or anybody else. That you would be our God. We would be your people. And you will get much glory and praise in that. Because you are our good and great God. Amen.